My name is Kyle, and this is Uplift, and I'm so glad that you are here. This message is also going to be streamed on Sunday mornings for the conversation. So if you're watching us on Sunday morning, I am so glad that you're here. You can log into the chat and say hi. This is the fifth message and the final message of our series, A Fresh Perspective. I've really liked these five weeks. We've walked through the book of Philippians, and we're going to conclude tonight here in Philippians chapter 4. Let me give you a little teaser for next week. We're starting a new four-week series called Crash Course. Four weeks, it's going to get us to spring break. And the point of this four-week series is to kind of hit um, some of the big themes, the big rocks of our faith, of Christianity Uh, And we're going to just do a crash course on four of those. So the big ones, and they're going to be the big words in the New Testament, big words like propitiation and sanctification, all those big words that we're kind of confused about a little bit, or we don't know how to explain, or we don't really know what they are, so much so that even the word propitiation, which is in some of our older translations in in 1 John chapter 2, some of our newer translations don't even use that word anymore. It's a great word, and it matters in theology. So we're going to be taking four weeks, and we're going to, going to do a, a download. Lots of apologetics, lots of theology, and lots of reasonable ways to think about the big rocks of our faith. So we're going to define these words. We're going to break them down. And the biggest thing we're going to do is we're going to make them mobile. We're going to make them mobile. And so listen, as was, with everything that I teach here, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, my biggest hope and prayer is that you take what you hear and you teach it elsewhere. You steal it use it. I don't need credit. Don't care about it. I want you to use this stuff. You can see all of these recordings, by the way, on YouTube, and you can get them on the podcast. Use it. Use it up. Use it anywhere you go. Let's wrap up our current series here by reading a couple of sentences from Paul from Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, I know how to be brought low And I know how to abound in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's the famous one. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm so intrigued by Paul's definition of what he's learned in his experience. Or he calls it a secret It's a really cool word. In fact, this is the only time in the entire New Testament this word is used. Only time. The word secret. Now, in the original letter, in the original language of this letter, this word is actually a form of the Greek word from which we get the English word mystery. So there's their cousins, secret and mystery, but but they're not the same word. Paul, if he wanted to use mystery, he could have used it. He's used the word mystery before, used it quite a bit. It's all over the New Testament. He could have said that he had solved the mystery of endurance, right? But he didn't. He said he learned the secret. Those two words are not the same thing. And here's the difference. A secret is something knowable, but only to insiders. A mystery is something that nobody knows. So, let me kind of explain this by using some Shakespeare. A couple of Shakespeare plays kind of illustrate this pretty well. So, Richard III, if you're a Shakespeare fan, Richard III was evil, wanted to become king. He had his plans to do so, and those plans involved murdering everybody in his way. Now, it was his secret 
because he and his closest allies knew the secret. Let's jump to Macbeth. Macbeth could become king in Shakespeare's play, and he too had to commit murder to do it. But Lady Macbeth didn't know this would happen, and really, the point of the play is neither did Macbeth himself. He didn't even know if he was capable of murder. So that was a mystery. Nobody knew what would happen. So there's the difference. Secret, people know it, but only a few. Mystery, nobody knows. I like that Paul used the word secret. It was his way of sharing information that he had crossed a line. And he now knew something that was known by other people. It was a knowable revelation. Secrets, by the way, are a part of life. And many of us keep a number of secrets. Maybe we don't want to. We also know how damaging secrets can be. There's a rule in the Strickland house, two words, no secrets. You hear that, those, two phrase, those two words all the time. We've always championed our kids asking us anything at any time for any reason. And we do the same for them. We can ask them the same, and they can ask each other anything. You'll hear those words. If people are whispering in the corner, someone else will scream, no secrets, no secrets, no secrets in our house. The only time you can keep secrets in the Strickland house, birthdays and Christmas, that's it. Other than that, life is an open door. But because really, secrets can be harmful sometimes. They can, they can hurt. Research shows that self-disclosure, sharing things, sharing secrets, actually promotes intimacy. You share something about yourself. But the research also shows that keeping secrets limits our relational abilities. In fact, one such study showed that people actually become preoccupied with the secrets that they keep. And not a good way. Secret keepers begin to feel a little deceptive. Their self, self-worth takes a, takes a hit. It makes, them, makes it hard for them to have close relationships because they know something someone else doesn't, and there's an impediment. You want to share, but you can't. You can't. And so you feel like there's a roadblock. The psychology of secrets is actually fascinating. Secrets, secrecy create what psychologists call motivational conflict. Secret keepers don't want to reveal information because they know the social cost of that, but withholding information also conflicts with how intimacy is built, and it's tough. In other words, secrets are tough on the person keeping the secret until the secret is shared. I want to tell you about an art project. It's called Post Secret. It's by a guy named Frank Warren, and Frank Warren began Post Secret in 2004 as an artist. And this is what he did. He invites, still to this day, people to share with him never-before-shared secrets. And the way that he's asked for that is that you write those secrets on a postcard and you mail it to him. You don't sign your name, you mail it to him. He then takes those secrets, all those postcards, and by the way, secrets of all kinds, all kinds. And then he creates an art project out of those secrets. And he's realized something along the way that it's a very cathartic and healing process for the people who share the secrets, but even for him, who's had to kind of grapple with the own secrets that he's he's kept. Which is why Paul, using this word, the word secret, is so special to me. It's so inviting, and here's why. There is information to know about one specific thing. 
and it's contentment. He's talking about the secret of contentment, of being fully happy and fully satisfied, not wanting or desiring more than what we currently have. It's, it's like in this little passage, at the end of this letter, Paul has finally cracked the code to life, to not chasing the next thing, to the way that we kill jealousy and envy. He's discovered this right here in his jail cell. Remember, he wrote Philippians from prison. And he's discovered right here the erosion of this motivational conflict of keeping this information just to himself. And in talking about contentment, he gives us something so very critical about our experience following Jesus. And it's this, and it's also where the title of our message came from. The secret of contentment is a hard secret to learn and a hard secret to keep. Let's talk about both of these. So let's read Paul's words from earlier in context. Let's going to go back to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 10 now. We're going to back up and we're going to get through verse 13. Here we go. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. If you have a physical Bible, this is worth highlighting or underlining. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, he writes to the Philippians, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Told you we're going to talk about both. Let's talk about the first, the secret of contentment is hard to learn. Now, we've said this already, but you got to remember that while Paul wrote these words, he wasn't writing them in his kitchen table. He was writing them from prison. He was incarcerated. So he's writing that he learned the secret of contentment from the other side of a prison door. I want you to think about that for a minute. At the risk of seeming really elementary, and and I really don't want to insult our intelligence, we talk about this quite a bit, Paul has learned that the secret of contentment can only be learned through suffering. That's it. It's what he says here. And that is a hard secret to learn. It's a hard secret to learn. Let's do a little deep dive here for a minute. This, This secret that Paul learned at first glance probably seemed pretty familiar to the Philippians. The philosophy of the age was called Stoicism. You can write that down. You can Google it later. Stoicism taught something very similar. Let me tell you what they, how this kind of happened. 300 years before the birth of Jesus, there was this guy from the island of Cyprus. His name was Zeno, and he was traveling to Athens by boat. And on his way there, he's a wealthy guy. On his way there, the ship sank. He lost everything, and he was stranded in Athens. He couldn't get back. He had no money. So a thousand miles away from his house, from his home, from everything he knew, he had to figure out a way to learn how to live. So he went to the local libraries and he pulled out all these writings from Socrates and Plato. He's trying to, Aristotle and all these these great philosophers. And he starts kind of putting together his own way of seeing the world. So he goes and he starts teaching on these steps about how to be content. Stoicism was born right here. 
It's the discipline or the philosophy of determining really what's up to us and what isn't, what we can control and what we can't. So the world, Stoics believed, was like this complex spider web of, of causes and effects. And our job as humans, this is what he taught, Zeno taught, our job as humans is to respond to all of these pressures and stressors with virtue, self-control, and honorable ways, and without any flux in emotion. In other words, it doesn't phase you. Now, that's Stoicism. That's what Paul's world knew about contentment. Now, let's be honest. It is a, it is a teaching of contentment, but it's not the teaching, and here's why. Because Stoicism is contentment with apathy. That's kind of the point. You don't care. Your job is to learn to not care. Be distant. Don't expect much from the world. Don't love too much either. Disassociate. Stand firm. Don't be and don't exhibit any emotions whatsoever. That's virtuous in the world of Paul. Not being too passionate. So, so yeah, when, when Paul talks about contentment, he's talking about something that's familiar but it's not really the same thing. It's not really the same thing. It was the current thought that drove his world, and really it's the current thought that drives ours. There's a couple of differences between this way and Paul's way of talking about contentment. Let me give them to you. First, contentment is not self-sufficiency. It's not. We think it is. We think it is. I'll explain it. It's Jesus' sufficiency. That's what contentment is. Now, again, Stoicism taught that the strength to cope and to be content came from within you. You find the strength and you find the power and you discipline yourself. And you hear that, we hear that echoing in current thoughts and phrases, right? Work hard, plan your work, work your plan, be yourself, you do you, tell your truth, listen to your heart. Disney says that a, a dream is a wish your heart makes. All of these things feel and look like contentment. Here's why, because they make us be in control of our situations. They turn us into demigods and they make us believe that we control our own destinies, that if we could just work harder, we'd be satisfied, we'd be content. And what a lie Satan has told us through that. Paul's teaching was much different. We don't, we don't, we don't possess the power to be content. In fact, we are discontent by our very nature. And here's why. Very simple logic. If humanity couldn't be content in the Garden of Eden, created just for us, then why in the world do you think we would be content anywhere else? We struggle in a world of dissatisfaction. That's who we are. Listen again to Paul's phrasing in this passage, verse 13. In fact, let's read this out loud together. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul knew in this tough lesson that the wisdom of Jesus, the wisdom of a God crucified and resurrected is the only source of contentment. Only in Jesus can we find this. Earlier in Philippians chapter 3, Paul wrote that in all things, I love this, he pursued the knowledge of, of Jesus. I want to read this to you. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. What an amazing statement. Now, this is Paul. This guy's in his 60s. He's deformed. He's scarred from beatings and imprisonments. If anybody, if anybody we would assume would know Jesus, it would be this guy who's in jail because he knows Jesus. And it's this guy that writes, I want to still know Jesus. What, a, what an amazing thought. It's this wisdom, this pursuit, this chase by Paul that is the source of his contentment. Look especially again at Paul's words in chapter 4, verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. How else could he make it in a roller coaster life but by knowing that Jesus had already suffered? He'd already experienced this. I mean, he chased Jesus. He wants to know him more and more and more because contentment is Jesus' sufficiency. That's the first thing we know about contentment. The second fundamental difference between Stoicism and Paul's teaching is this. Contentment is not apathy. I'm going to throw you a curveball. It's obedience. Contentment is not apathy. It's obedience. Now, this is tough. It's tough to hear. It's tough to say. Even in my own current trials, it's hard. It seems tough. It is tough because the implications, if we're going to be honest, are a little bit offensive because you're probably asking these questions to yourself right now. I mean, this is the question. You mean that my contentment and suffering is how God forms me? It's my opportunity to obey? Are you out of your mind? You've been through the crucible, and I've been through it, and it hurts. It hurts, but that's what the Bible teaches. That's what Scripture teaches. That's what Paul believes. And here's why. A pinnacle verse, passage in the New Testament from Hebrews chapter 5 and from the life of Jesus. If you can turn there and underline it, go for it. If not, write it down. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Look at this, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. But was he saved from death? No, he died, crucified. Verse 8. Although he was a son, here it is, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Listen, obedience and contentment, they are inseparable. It's not apathy and contentment. It's not a flippant indifference about the world. We probably wish it was. We probably wish that the answer would just be to not care. I mean, if, if it was that simple, if it was that, then Jesus wouldn't have cried. He cared. And you wouldn't have cried when life has been hard for you. I wouldn't have. We care. We love. It's how we're built. But this road of formation, of obedience for us, listen, this is a good one. It's not without hope. In Hebrews 5, it says that Jesus, his obedience resulted in his perfection of his glorification, but it wasn't without peril. It wasn't without pain. And let's be honest here. 
It's a, it's a fine line to walk to think that Jesus was ever in a situation to learn anything. That makes us kind of scratch our heads a little bit, but the Gospels are clear about Jesus' humanity. You know what he prayed in the garden? What did he pray? Not my will, but yours, Father. Not mine, but yours. In the richest of narratives in Scripture, this is where we find that Jesus had another will for his life. He had it. But he surrendered that will to God, to the divine plan of crucifixion and redemption. And that obedience resulted in his perfection and our salvation. We are not without hope, even in these hardest of lessons to learn. The secret of contentment is hard, but it's rewarded beyond description. That's the first. Secret of, con- of contentment is hard to learn. But here's the second one. Secret of contentment is also hard to keep. Paul's incarceration did not stop his proclamation. He did not restrain himself. In fact, he pushed himself harder to share this secret. Let's look at this statement from Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. But one thing I do, that's what Paul wrote, forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, if if you make a mistake, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let this be the testimony of our lives. Look at these four four actions. Forgetting, Forgetting the past, right? It can't be fixed. It's over. We got a lot of regrets, but we can't can't fix them. Forget it. Straining forward. It's this image of Paul running, his hands outstretched toward the finish line, pressing on. He writes that. When he didn't think he could go any farther, he went a little farther. And hold true. He's got two hands, two hands on this rope, holding on for dear life. Paul did not doubt what would happen or what would become of him and of all of those who believed. This is why he could do it. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. Can you imagine Paul writing that? A mangled, deformed, beaten body who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The secret of contentment for Paul was hard to keep. He refused by the power of Jesus to let any of these circumstances dampen his joy and his purpose and his telling of such. And that same power is available to you. I want to wrap up this uh, series by telling you a story. It's a true story. On October 21st, 2009, Northwest Airlines flight 188 was scheduled to fly from San Diego, California to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now, two hours into this flight, right over Colorado, air traffic control lost contact with the plane. Now, this routine flight, routine flight turned immediately into an emergency situation because a plane 
went missing. Assumptions were made quick, and they were obvious assumptions. Most people believed that were in the scenario that the plane had been taken over by terrorists. NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, the organization that protects American airspace, they were contacted. Fighter jets were fueled and ready and prepared for takeoff. The White House Situation Room was even notified. This was a scary situation. But the pilots, the pilot and his co-pilot, had no idea that any of this was happening. They were fine. They were cruising at an altitude where the plane was flying itself, and they were doing normal things. The captain actually went to the bathroom, took a bathroom break. Now, in all of this, air traffic control in Denver finally made contact with the plane and told them to switch radio frequencies. Now, the pilots in the bathroom, the first officer, the co-pilot, changed the frequencies but mixed up the numbers. And instead of getting the air traffic control that they were told to, they tuned into the air traffic control of Winnipeg, which is the capital of the Canadian province of Manitoba. Now, the first officer never knew he had messed up the frequencies, had no idea. And he began talking to this air traffic control. He talked to them, but they didn't really talk back, and that wasn't unusual. But he could hear them. He knew it was the air traffic control that he was told to get to, or at least he thought. So he's hearing them. He thinks everything is fine. The, the first officer, the co-pilot, never knew the difference. He said all the required things, got no response. Now, the captain since returns from the bathroom, comes back. And he and his first officer kind of chat about what's been happening. Not, not a big deal. They chat for a few minutes. And then both of them started passing the time on their laptops. They were trying to figure out the scheduling that they were, this new scheduling thing for pilots. All the while, air traffic control in Winnipeg continued to chat. And air traffic control in Denver kept trying to make contact but never could. And the pilots and the fighter jets were ready to take off they shoot the plane down. Now, in the middle of all this, an emergency light on the dashboard begins to flash. It's an Airbus A320, and the only way that you could get a hold of someone in an emergency is flash a little red light. No sound, just a light, and it only flashed for 30 seconds. They didn't even see it. They didn't even know. Here's how they found out they were going in the wrong direction. The flight was taking too long. Some of the attendants in the back called the cockpit and said, why are we still in the air? They begin to do a little investigation. They realized that they were 150 miles off course. And they discovered the frequency for the air traffic control in Minneapolis, and they made contact. And the air traffic controllers in Minneapolis thought this, they still think terrorists have control of the plane. So they instruct the pilots to get off of autopilot and make a series of very difficult turns to verify that they were indeed in control of the plane and that no terrorists were on board. The fighter jets were called off, the plane landed safely, and those who were flying had no idea anything was wrong until the police and the FBI boarded their plane when they landed. Now, there was a huge investigation, huge. And in the, in the investigation, the investigators claimed one thing that I thought was significant. They claimed, they, they blamed the pilots. 
And though the pilots never broke a law, the investigators said that they lacked situational awareness. Situational awareness. They were busy. They were talking, arguing, passing time. It's important to note here that the plane never crashed. But the flight itself was a total, total mess. I'm, I'm telling you this story for one reason, that the secret of contentment is chiefly an experience of situational awareness. It's what it is. It's indisputable that we're going to hurt and cry. Your heart's going to be broken. You'll amass a room full of regrets. You're going to lose sleep. You'll second guess yourself. You'll watch those you love hurt so much that you wish you could take the pain from them. Those are facts. That's life. But as a follower of Jesus, you have the opportunity to be situationally aware and to know that even your suffering is redeemable, that even the God you follow hurt as much as you do and found glory and peace in that difficulty so he could empower us to do the same. Make no mistake, this is a hard lesson to learn, but with great situational awareness, following Jesus, this is a hard secret to keep. You can't keep this to yourself. You're going to experience the peace of God in miraculous ways that you won't be able to keep it to yourself. You're not even going to know how that's happening. You are going to be a living witness, a miraculous witness to Jesus in the middle of your sufferings. But without Jesus, Without situational awareness, we're going to be aimless. Like flight 188, you're going to be off course. You're not going to be trusted, and you're going to end up not caring. The secret of contentment is a hard lesson to learn, but it's a hard secret to keep. And I'm here to tell you that in Jesus, you can do it because he's the one that strengthens you.